HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number 10 by The Legion of Dudes. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the... Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time The Legion of... Dude, 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 Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. Oh, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Candles in the window, carols at the spirit. Yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flurry, but Santa dear, we're in a hurry. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens Brown paper packages tied up with strings These are a few of my favorite things And now, here's the dudes Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. The nuclear clock is ticking. It's two minutes till midnight. Greetings, listeners. From the weird, wide world known as the Internet, Half Hour Wasted presents The Legion of Dudes, Who Reads the Watchmen, issue number 10. I'm Jim Dietz, Yoda Jones on the ComicForums.com, recording live from the Gypsy Cafe Christmas Party in Pittsburgh, PA. And tonight I am aided and abetted by the assembled Legion of Dudes. Guys, introduce yourselves, please. Hey, this is Ken Morgan. This is John. This is Russ. Hey, it's Adam. And uh, I'd like to pass it over to our good friend John, who's going to talk about our contest with uh, Sean Pryor, PKD uh, Media. John? First thing I'd like to do tonight is play a voicemail that I think Ken has queued up from Sean. Sean Pryor from uh, PKD Media was nice enough to join us for our Christmas show, and he left us a great voicemail. So why don't you take that away, Ken? Hey, Legion of Dudes, how you doing? This is Sean Pryor, uh, a.k.a. Optimus Black 2007, and creator, writer, manager, water boy for PKD Media. Wanted to uh, say thank you very much for including me uh, in your um, Christmas, uh, Christmas uh, wants and, and needs uh, episode. Um, I hope that your guys' Christmas and New Year is wonderful and plentiful, and I hope you, know, you get to spend time with your family and loved ones and... Um, you know, thank you for letting me be a part of that episode. I had a wonderful time, and um, you know, I'm glad and thankful that you guys uh, gave me a moment to yap and uh, pimp a PKD Media's comic books and things of that nature. Uh, you gentlemen are wonderful. Um, I hope that these episodes continue just to come out on a weekly basis, and, um, and I look forward to them. Uh, have a wonderful new year, a wonderful Christmas, and I will be talking with you guys again. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, we'd like to thank Sean again for coming and uh, for the very nice voicemail. That was really cool and a lot of fun. And we're going to use that to segue into a little contest that we're gonna, going to run. Sean was nice enough to get us some copies of the Mercury and the Murd Collected Edition and some soundtrack CDs from the Mercury and the Murd. So we're going to be giving those away in a contest. We're asking everyone to email read, R-E-E-D, at legionofdudes.com, read 
since he wasn't able to make it tonight, has become the honorary uh, judge for this contest. He doesn't know it yet, but we're going we're gonna to tell him. Either that or he'll just start getting emails, I guess. Um, what we'd like you to do is we'd like you to call the dudes out on something that we might have missed in a Watchmen show. So if you can remember a really cool point or you were disappointed by something that maybe we didn't get to, send those emails in to read at legionofdudes.com and we will pick out a winner shortly. And you'll be the proud owner of a Mercury and the Murd collected edition and a soundtrack CD. Sounds pretty good to me. It's awesome. I have it. I have my copy right here. It's wonderful. Tonight's special guest on issue 10 is uh, Ed Pisker, a Pittsburgh artist for uh, such great comics and graphic novels as American Splendor and Macedonia, and his own uh, creator-owned work, uh, WYSIWYG, which is available at www.edpisker.com. How's it going, Ed? Pretty good, man. It's good to be here with you guys. It's good to be inside, man. It's really cold here in Pittsburgh tonight. (laughs) 11 degrees Uh, down here in the south side of Pittsburgh. Yeah, oh, so you're on the south side, huh? Very cool, very cool. I'm from uh, East Pittsburgh myself, like East Suburbs, like uh, Harrison City, Monroeville. Okay, okay, that's so, cool. Uh, yeah, I went to Penn Trafford, so uh, where'd you go to high school in Pittsburgh? Still Valley, actually. I'm, I'm from so, Homestead. Gotcha, okay. Well, that's, that's in the neighborhood. You got it. Yeah. Hey, Ed, why don't you tell us a little bit about the new uh, Volume 2 of WYSIWYG that just came out? Well, uh just just finished it off a couple weeks ago, and it's receiving a pretty pretty decent response right now. I decided to sort of forego uh, traditional book distribution, so the the comic isn't found in in the previews catalog like everything else. I pretty much just distribute it from my website, and I've been uh, relying on reviews online, um, different mentions from podcasts, video casts, blogs, things like that to sort of get the word out. And it's been it's been pretty successful so far. Um just got in touch uh, some some guy from Wired magazine called uh with interest about it. But it's basically just uh, a graphic novel series about a computer hacker, sort of the life and times, the highs and lows. And uh that's about it. That's about it. Working on issue 3 right now. And did you did you uh check out volume 2? I did. I was going to say I really enjoyed it a lot. I really probably what one of the parts I really love about it the most is the total nostalgia trip that uh, your graphic novel puts me on when I see like a TRS eighty or a, you know a dial up modem that you actually have to put the handset into the modem or you know a Commodore sixty four when uh, like when he learns to hack the games and sell them around his high school things like that you know like games like Zork and right. uh, and do. And things like that. I just I, lo- I love the you know, the old school uh, computer gaming and stuff. So I mean, it's really and it's just I just find it really hilarious too because the, the like you have the comments from the people on the BBSs about Boing Thump, which is uh, Kevin's you know alter ego online, and it's just it's just very true and very funny. And I recommend that you know I recommend WYSIWYG to a lot of people. I mean, it's really uh, good good work, man. I really enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I'm looking at your site, and uh, it's pretty it's pretty great. I really like the layout and everything, and you got some great art galleries on there, Ed. I really like the uh, short story, the one page you did called Crumb's Hat, um, about R. Crumb. That's great. I, lo- I love R. Crumb's art. Uh, you know, and pretty much anything the guy does is really fascinating. Thanks, thanks a lot, man. That that uh, one page strip was written by this guy Jay Lynch, who is you know, he's sort of a, a footnote of underground comics history, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he currently he is sort of an idea man behind um, Garbage Pail Kids, and he works for Tops. And you know he's seen a lot, he's done a lot, but he hasn't done a lot of comics in a long time. So it was pretty fun to work with that dude. He's he's 
he's got a lot of history inside of him, and I convinced him to to do like about seventeen pages worth of autobiographical strips, uh, where uh, sort of dealing with his uh, relationships with various underground cartoonists, and and that was a that was a fun thing to be a part of. Well, I know that, like, you know, it, it seems that, you know, the folks that you've associated with professionally have that underground, you know, uh, twinge and tone to, to their work and, well, you know, how they, you know, contribute to the comics industry. So I guess, can you think of any uh, mainstream books that you're reading right now or any underground slash indie books that, uh, you know, are really stand out to you? Or are you not with Are you not with the Bendis and John set? <laughs> uh, to, to be honest, I, I, I really haven't read much much uh much monthly comics that have been coming out lately you know to be honest but what i have been absorbing like crazy are these um reprinted comic strips that they're putting out every couple there there's just seems to be a different one every week so i'm into the popeye reprints i'm into the terry and the yes. pirates reprints dick tracy little orphan annie i can't wait for pogo to come out but that's going to take uh, another year like, probably like, uh, crazy cat nignats that kind of stuff yeah you know what that's the one that that i don't dig as much i mean uh if, if really? you're set well here's the thing when those strips came out you know they were in the sunday paper and they absolutely were meant to be read one per week so you sit down with one of those books and it's it's uh it's hard to to get through reading page after page of that stuff. It just is. It gets to be a little disjointed and and crazy. But but I I love the stuff. But I, I'll you know I'll just get those books out at the library and check them out every now and again. But uh, yeah, that stuff's not my favorite. Well, I guess to kind of bring everything together before Russ starts uh, our discussion topic here. Like, um, when did you when did you uh, read Watchmen first? Did you read it when it came out in the eighties, or did you pick it up afterward? Picked it up afterward. Um, I'm 26, so I I was about four or something whenever it initially came out. So between uh, my friends and the comic geeks around my age, it wasn't – your geek status was not la- – uh, you know, you didn't attain your status by being there to read the original. And uh, you sort of receive your badge of honor based on which printing of the trade paperback you have. So I have the fourth printing that came out in, like, uh, let me see, like, I think 19... Oh, this came out in 87, but I actually got it at a flea market when I was about 10. And I, I read some interviews with my favorite cartoonists at the time, like Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarland, and, and they sort of made reference to Watchmen and Dark Knight a lot. So I figured if, if these guys who, who were my favorite artists at the time are recommending this book, I might as well check it out. The cool thing is, for face value, this, just the story, a, a 10-year-old can get into it. He's not going to understand everything. But I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I didn't think it was the greatest comic ever. I've grown to love it. At this point now, I think I might have read the book about 60 times. I read it a couple times a year. That's interesting wow. because, you know, Watchmen, and we're really hitting the stride here with 10, 11, and 12 as, as we end this. Because, and I think the ending especially, but the characters to begin with, it's so atypical of comics. Do you think, well, let me ask you this. In what ways is Watchmen an underground comic? Based off of like your own personal rubric of taste. My my main attraction for for underground comics and a lot of people's were just the subversive nature of the stories. So you know it it was almost 
like an interest in sort of pornography or something like that. This is okay. We're all listening. Keep going. <laughs> you know, you you look at an old Robert Crumb comic, and as a kid, you, the the reaction that you have for for that work is like, oh my goodness, look at how these where these people are dripping from and everything. All, all that I could say about that is that is that um, you know a lot of underground comics they did deal with subversive themes and very very adult oriented stuff, which which Watchmen does does uh, delve into, but certainly it, it stops at, at a tasteful point, uh, not like the the underground comics where you know there would be beheadings and a lot of like gratuitous sex stuff and. Things like that. So, if if uh, if Watchmen would be considered an under, underground comic to anybody, it would be sort of the most tasteful uh, underground comic uh, that, that's that's ever come out, and and uh, I, I'd certainly call it the most underground mainstream comic. I guess that's my thought. Awesome. All right. Well, just kind of uh, cleaning house and doing some housekeeping stuff here now. Uh, a couple points uh, and uh, things to note as we get closer and closer to the to issue 12 and to the movie. Um, first of all, on the list, um, Comic Geek Speak has started um, their Watchmen footnotes hosted by Peter Rios. Um, that started with issue one uh, last week. So, folks, be sure to check out Comic Geek Speak's podcast. You can find them on iTunes or comicgeekspeak.com. They're doing um, a step-by-step um, Watchmen kind of... Uh, uh, show just like uh, they normally do with their footnotes. Definitely check that out. Number two, if you go to comicbookresources.com, in anticipation of the film Watchmen, the award-winning retailers, uh, Carl D'Angelo and Adam Freeman, are rereading the entirety of Watchmen like we are, and they're also going to be providing commentary on Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' work along the way. They're going to be starting with Chapter 1 uh, this week, when you guys hear this on Thursday, when that's released. And I guess point number three is uh, DC has not only solicited, but it's out on the shelves right now, or waiting in your box from DCBS, that the Watchmen hardcover has been uh, re-released with a new cover by Dave Gibbons. And what they've done is, you know, the most recent releases that DC's done has, has been the Absolute Edition, and of course that's been re-solicited too. In this new hardcover edition, which is has the same content that's in the international trade paperback that came out a couple months back, um, the print quality is a little is a little different this time around. Um, what they did was they took uh, um, like uh, the high gloss page that they the DC would normally put in their trades, and instead of having the uh, traditional um, paper, the, the glossy paper, I think didn't really do a good uh, transfer or good justice to John John Higgins recoloring of Watchmen. So if you see it on the shelf at Borders or your comic store, open it up, flip through it. You're going to get the same content, though, in the International Edition trade, um, which itself has a little more artwork that Gibbons has done for the movie, for the promo stuff. Um, That's retailing at 40 bucks, but we all know you can get it on in-stock trades for a lot cheaper. And with that, we're going to toss it over to Russ and everybody else, and we're going to start issue 10. All right. Again, thanks, thanks to Ed Pisker for joining us as our as our guest for this this issue. And um, like like the nine previous, we'll start off with this one being a um, cover is a close up of panel one, and this time we get um, what looks like a radar screen, a big blown up radar screen, and we see that the United States is at DEFCON two. Um, it's interesting that we're at two minutes we're at two minutes to midnight, um, you know, per the per the end of the book. But what I found was interesting is the display on the on the radar screen shows it's 11:59 and 22 seconds. So 
I, I, I just thought that was kind of interesting at two minutes to midnight. We're really half a minute to midnight. So There's a really cool uh, sort of image in the radar screen that's easily missed. I, I'm, I sort of became aware of it well into probably like the – 20th time I, I read this story. And if you take a look at the two blips that are sort of incoming, they're sort of like, like eyeballs. And if you look at the, uh, there's like a white glare sort of in the shape of a smiley face, you know, but be, uh, beneath that. And you see the red color within that screen. It, it looks like another blood sp- uh, spattered uh, smiley face, which is, which is a, uh, a theme throughout the, the entire novel. And uh, that that's sort of under people's radar, no pun intended. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny how you see the cover, and and there's a lot of detail to it. And then we see panel one, and it like <clears throat> it almost like zooms out more. And then we see in panel two, it, it it's even more like a traditional um, simplistic smiley face look to it. You know, where we don't see the the circular you know um, distance lines around the radar and stuff. We just see the you know the, the the bottom glare, the two eyes, and then the you know the the, the nose and splatter type symbol. So it's, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Russ, I'd also add to this that because of the nature of the radar, it's also a clock. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. like if it's a second or a minute hand. Yeah, right, yeah, right the, there it is. Yeah, it's just before midnight. Yep. yep. Man, <laughs> so it's a common combination: a smiley and a clock all in one. See, Andrew was going to write that in for the. Uh, contest but I, I got him on that so you know too bad can't win that trade now sorry go home i have a uh, interesting footnote if you're if you're into comic production and the way the color works um the way these covers for watchmen were constructed is a pretty elaborate sort of uh way to produce these things uh for the 1980s you know traditional uh four color comics you know, there would be, you know, four separate plates with black, magenta, cyan, and yellow creating the various colors. Um, if you take a look these, at the various covers of each of these Watchmen books, um, you see some differences, some, some airbrushing, and there's a lot of modeling with the color, and there's certainly more than just the standard four-color way of doing things. And the way they accomplished that was um, Dave Gibbons would produce, produce the cover. He would fully ink it. They would, uh, they would shoot it with a special camera that would create a copy of the image. Um, instead of a black line, the lines would be like a non-reproducible uh, uh, blue ink. And John Higgins would literally just paint those blue lines and uh, create the colors that he wanted. And then they would get an overlay of black, uh, which would represent Dave Gibbons ink work. And then they would shoot the overlay that was sort of like, think of like an animation cell on top of a background. And that's how they achieve these weird color values and stuff with the cover. It's, it's definitely an antiquated way of doing things, but I, I thought it was an interesting thing to note. Yeah, also probably, I never knew any of that. Yeah, Higgins yeah. was probably in heaven when he got to recolor everything for the Absolute Edition. Did did Higgins uh, do the recoloring? Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I, I consider that guy an unsung hero of of this thing because uh, in the eighties, 
thanks to laser technology for the color reproduction, um, these guys, they were able to get so many more colors in, into their palette than what they previously were able to do with, with the, the older way of doing things. I think, I think the first comics had um, 64 different color possibilities, which is extremely limited. And um, if you guys have ever seen any comics in the 80s put out by like that company Eclipse Comics or First Comics, mm-hmm. those people had the exact same palette of, you know, choice of palette that Higgins employed. And if you remember some of those books, you know, Grim Jack or American Flag, the color can be garish oh, at times, really awful. Yeah, and, and, and I think stuff on American, right? What's that? Howard Chaykin, right? Yeah. Yeah. But a, a lot of, a lot of those books, just the color I mean, it was just competing with the imagery and you, you didn't know, they, they were just sort of running wild with the, the amount of colors that they have just been introduced with and and they were excited about the possibilities but it created almost this like candy bowl of color imagery on each cover and and higgins really reined it in and he he had the option to use a lot of color but he he kept a limited palette which um which which just looks beautiful to me i this this stuff it's it still holds up i'm interested in seeing the absolute do any of you guys own that yeah yeah, that's where, what I read from. It, it, it's funny because, you know, as much as we talk about the art and we talk about Gibbons, we talk, I would say, almost just as much about color. You know, throughout the discussions we've had, we talked about the way the, you know, the color is washed on certain panels or the color choices or, you know, the Rum use runner. of red. Or, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so you know, I think even from us, you know, we haven't given Higgins as much due as he, as he probably deserves. But, but definitely this... That's interesting... You know, that's interesting too that you bring up Chaikin because looking at the recently released uh, you know American Flag Compendium that came out when this launched an issue one hit you know Dick Giordano everybody else Chaikin included from uh, Gibbons' book Watching the Watchmen were all pretty much you know manic and crazy on how good this is so like the collaboration in the industry really was just these three Higgins Gibbons and more but I don't quite think that any of the other creators were in the loop on this. And I think, you know, if you read Watching the Watchmen, Chaikin's response is pretty extreme, a, po- a positive one. But I- I'm wondering if and when other comic books started to take their cues from Watchmen. Because Gibbons and Chaikin were pretty tight back in the 80s. I didn't realize those guys were that close, to, to be honest. That's, that's an interesting point. There's a local illustrator that I had noticed as well named Mike Zingarelli, who has this whole theory about 1986 and uh, the, being the magic year for comics because that was the year of the Dark Knight and uh, Watchmen came out and so many uh, other comics and look like comics were finally going to get their due as you know, a respected medium, you know, more so than they are now. But I guess he was just like 20 years off. But <laughs> we're starting to see some of that respect now, you know. Yeah, but I think the whole thing with the 80s, it was like when, when Dark Knight came out and Watchmen came out and everybody else realized they had to up their game. I mean, that's why you get things like American Flag or uh, Grim Jack or a lot of the other really great comics uh, that came out of uh, the, that part of the 80s. The, the only problem is is that um, they sort of used Dark Knight and Watchmen as a template for, you know, to, to create these like grim and gritty comics. So then you have your, your alcoholic Iron Man and all that stuff, all these heroes with problems and uh weekly punisher comics (laughs) alan moore and and gibbons they flat out said that you know this was like 
just something they were interested in exploring. They didn't want to stick around in the quote-unquote grim and gritty uh, landscape. And if they were to uh, put a project together uh, after Watchmen, they were interested in putting together a, a Captain Marvel story that was like whimsical and fun. Um, obviously never came around, but but uh, he was just sort of emphasizing the idea that, you know, he kind of felt guilty about the idea of the whole grim and gritty thing coming coming around. You know, I guess that's kind of funny about Alan Moore. He seems very anti-establishment. So it's funny that he creates something that's kind of against the grain, and then when it becomes the grain, he wants to do something that's against against the grain that he created. So it's just... It, it you know what what I know about Alan Moore it seems to follow his that that definitely seems to follow his his thinking you know where he he never wants to be you know the the trendsetter or whatever you want to call it in in the in the mainstream that could be I, I think I think the guy also just has has a wild imagination and just doesn't have to stick in one wheelhouse or another he's just got got a lot of stories to tell and and uh, you know he 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 didn't want to want want to create this stultifying template that um, everybody else sort of used for the next 10 years or so. I guess it's even continuing further today, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like anything else when it's successful, it spawns imitators uh, that don't, that, you know, really don't, like, duplicate the success. I mean, the whole successful thing isn't the grim and gritty stance. It's the development of the characters and the story itself, at least in my opinion. But, I mean, instead of taking that deep character development and making that the trend, or, you know, the symmetrical uh, layout of the panels or whatever, making that the trend. They took the postmodern grim and gritty thing and really didn't have the depth that Watchmen did. It just, you know, it, it just seemed, I don't know, just very shallow, just like trend, trend following when it happened. Yeah, they're like watered-down versions, like fading Xerox copies of the uh, original. Now you know what happens when you make a copy of a copy. <laughs> <laughs> the Clone Saga? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So getting back to, to the bottom of page one here, we see that the title of this issue is called Two Writers Were Approaching. And, and as we'll get to the end, we'll see the, the lyrics to All Along the Watchtower by, um, the lyrics by Dylan, but made most famous, I would say, by, uh, by Jimi Hendrix. And we'll see this, this two writers were approaching, or this, this concept of two writers um, throughout the whole issue, not just, you know, you know primarily in Rorschach and Night Owl, um, but also, as we see on the first panel, where we see the president and the vice president riding in um, on their respective, um, you know, Air Force One and Air Force Two jets um, to keep them safe with the imminent um, nuclear attack coming, or at least with the the U.S. being at DEFCON two. Like if you if you look at panel four on page one, there are two everywhere. There's two guys on ground control. There's two um, yep. planes. There's two jet engines. There's two helicopters, and there's two riders approaching as well. If you look in there. And the other thing, too, is after Hollis Mason died in issue nine, that was Halloween, right? So this issue is actually uh, skipped back a couple days in Watchmen, in the Watchmen timeline. Because if you look at the cover, it says 1159, which is at this point like 30 seconds to midnight, right, uh, with the Watchmen theme. But it's really like noon at noon on Halloween. So this is before Hollis Mason died. Yeah. This is well, just a, a flashback. Hey, yeah. hey, Adam, to kind of, I guess, to retrace back over my own steps. This would be military, so this would be actually thirty seconds to noon. Not, I was mistaken. Not thirty seconds to midnight, because midnight would be twenty three fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. But not, what I'm saying is, like, yeah. like to get to that midnight kind of like, sure, 
motif is it's it's just we're getting closer. It's just twelve hours off. That's what I mean. You know what I mean? Right. Which kind of yeah, makes no, sense with the whole uh, with the whole like doomsday clock. You know how that thing's you know actually real. <laughs> Right. So, um, and you know, the thing about writers too is like, if you look at the Dylan lyrics, um, which we will uh, at the end of the, of the chapter, like the whole writer theme in literature is pretty weird because you have like the um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I know there's four, but um, you know, who are on like these mighty beasts? You have like um, like the writers. Like, if you look at like 300 or any kind of like military type drama, it's like Paul Revere's ride. Like, we have to warn. Um, raise the alarm, more or less. And the writers we're seeing is Air Force One and Air Force Two with Nixon, with uh, Nixon and Ford, in this case. And um, it's it's a weird like, not necessarily like symbol, but definitely things people come back to in literature. That idea of um, writers and being well, like Jim said at the opening, like highwaymen, kind of really watchmen. If you think about raising the alarm, absolutely. So moving on to to page two, we see. Um, the elderly Richard Milhouse Nixon exiting Air Force One, um, carrying something under his arm, um, and then again we get to, to panel two and we see the the two the two people in the in the control tower or in um, behind the radar screen. And again, we get the smiling the smiley face motif, and then you know again on panel three we get the two helicopters, you know Marine uh, conceivably Marine One and Marine Two carrying the president the vice president off. And we get to panel four, and I find it interesting that, and it, it, it made me chuckle um, this last time when I read it, because I, I guess I really paid more attention to it than I had in the past, but they always talk about the nuclear football, the nuclear football. And, you know, when, when we've seen it in TV or movies or whatever before, it's always, you know, a suitcase that's, you know, handcuffed to somebody's um, wrist. And I, I just thought it was funny that, you know, in this instance, it's a football-shaped device that's actually handcuffed to Richard Nixon. So... The nuclear football is literally a football. Yeah, I caught that. And also, also uh, Gerald Ford can't catch a break. I think he tripped off the helicopter step once, and uh, Chevy Chase picked it up, and now even uh, Gibbons can't let it go. He's got Ford tripping out of the <laughs> yeah. helicopter in panel six. Definitely. Yeah. I thought Nixon was holding a suppository. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to read this article real quick from the Baltimore Sun. On January 20th, an unobtrusive military officer carrying a small leather-bound metal briefcase will follow President George W. Bush to Capitol Hill. After the inauguration ceremony, he will accompany President Barack Obama back to the White House. Inside the attache known as the football are the codes to identify and authenticate a presidential order that could launch nuclear weapons and ignite global holocaust. So, see you on January 20th. <laughs> so there you go. You know, that's, that's, that's protocol to today, till today, you know? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that, that guy is always near the president at all times. And it's funny that we get... You know, as as they as they approach the facility on three, it it just reminded me. I mean, obviously they're going uh, what, what I'm considering to be NORAD. So it's funny when they when they kind of show up and they show that that exterior. It just it just makes me think of of Stargate. Where I was going to say, I wonder if they can go to the gate room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a very Stargate moment um, looking at looking at those panels there. That's weird. I got a um. Doctor Strange love feel from it. We can go Matthew Broderick and go War Games. <laughs> then moving on to page three, we get we get um, President Nixon um, coming you know coming down, and they're asking him about his uh, about the First Lady and where she's at. Now, did you guys take that as being? 
the first lady is not as secure as the president, and he's just kind of you know, basically saying, well, it's not, you know, not the best of situations, but, you know, you know, I, I, but, you know, he says, but she's okay now, I guess. Or do you take it that she is in a secure location, just different from the president? I took it as he's just was surprised by the question because this is probably the first time he even thought about her. He's been so focused on everything else. Right. I took it as just to make him like a bumbling idiot. You know, like he really had no clue. Yeah, interesting. I couldn't. I couldn't. For me, it was it was kind of a toss up with with either or. I almost thought it was more like you know she wasn't you know on top of it she wasn't even in a secure location. Um, you know that they were making sure the president was taken care of, which. Which I thought was kind of odd, but. Did you guys see Kissinger's at the bottom of page three? Henry Kissinger? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Kissinger's very, there, very and, much. and that's Liddy behind him. Yeah, G. Gordon, yeah, G. Gordon Liddy, because they even get into <laughs> a little bit of banter on, on page three about the tactics and stuff, and, and uh, you know, and, and, and he even, he even kind of chimes back at, at Liddy. I like how he says he will not be pressurized. I think that goes yeah, more that toward was... the, the idea that he's kind of a buffoon. Something, yeah, hear, something you can hear W say. It, I totally yeah, had a W moment on that too. Mm-hmm. I like Nixon when he had his head in a jar in Futurama. <laughs> <laughs> then we get to the to the bottom of three, and again he's sitting in the chair with the football strapped to him. And it's funny because it even looks like if you look at the, I, it looks like the reflection, but the way the reflection is is drawn in at the bottom, it almost looks like laces on a football. You know the way that the way those that reflection um, is shining off of it. You know what I'm thinking. Um, you notice how um, Nixon's wearing the same colors as Adrian, purple. Yeah. I was like, hmm. I don't think that's a mistake. Moving on to page four, we finally get back to um, Rorschach and Night Owl, and it's interesting. Again, we get this the top three panels on on page four, where it's the same. You know, it's basically the same. You know, panel just repeated with their conversation back and forth, where you know, um, you know, Dan is is you know piloting the ship and and you know, or messing with buttons and stuff, and Rorschach is just you know zoned, you know, just just kind of just sitting there with a the blank stare, um, you know, waiting for them to get to their destination. I really like these uses of fixed camera angles, and I really dig um, looking through the cockpit, and you you could see the ship. You know, emerge from the water uh, in panel three on that page. All oh, right, right. Yeah. In the middle, in the middle panel, you can see like fish swimming by or something. Right. And then he's actually coming out of the water in the third. I, n- I never noticed that. Yeah, yeah, me neither. There's a there's a few of those actually now that I've got them noted a little earlier where we see the same image repeated in the panel, but yet there's subtle um, references to time passing. You know, like like yes, for the most part, everything is the same. People are in, and things are in the same position. Um, but the time passes. We'll see that a little bit later. I think in the, one of the uh, when we get to find out where the the missing folks are when the, when that revelation comes forward, we'll we'll see that too. But. Twin towers up oh, yeah. Yeah. on the New yep. York skyline uh, again with the the two, and well, the other two writers are Rorschach and Dan. It'll be interesting to see part. if they uh, since this the movie is going to keep the same timeline we set in the eighties. Is, is that right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to see if they. Uh, Include a skyline shot with the twin towers in there. I would, I would think they probably would, just to be historically accurate. But yeah, that'll be interesting to see because it's almost, you know, you see it now and it's almost like it stands, you know, something that you know for years and years and years you'd see and it didn't, you know, it you didn't notice it. But now when you watch an old movie, an old, you know, quote unquote old, um, you know, and you see the 
the twin towers in there, it, it makes you you know you it ca- you notice it. You know it, it it you know it catches your eye. These two pages, what really stood out for me was the way that Dan was drawn. You know how we'd said earlier that Dan's physique seemed to kind of follow his mindset. Like first he was schlubby, and then when things were going well with Laurie, he looked better. And in the breakout, he looked almost more athletic. And now he's really back to, I mean, his midsection is drawn particularly wide on these two pages. Mm-hmm. I noticed that as well. I jump right out to yeah. Especially yeah, as definitely. Rorschach starts to, like, break his chops. And, you know, it's almost like with his uh, feelings go his physique. And then Rorschach, you know, through the whole exchange back and forth on five, you know, and they talk about the, the mass killer and what they need to do and, you know, how all this stuff, is, you know, the framing and <clears throat> him being framed and, and all that kind of stuff. And Rorschach just, just says, yes, all accomplished so easily. Lesson and vulnerability must be more careful in future. <clears throat> and then Dan is just like, future, what, you know, what future? You know, Rorschach is going on. It's almost like he knows that the world is pretty much going to end and this is kind of the, their last, you know, big hurrah, their last, you know, right off into the sun. And, but he's still making notes on, you know, what, you know, lessons learned. And, and Dan is, you know, is, is totally focused on the fact that, you know, it's all kind of pointless anyway. Um, you know, there is no future in that we're, you know, you know, quickly approaching Armageddon. Uh, one one thing that I find of note, and you guys have probably spoke spoken about this in the past, but just the immersive world that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons create on these pages, uh, that's that's just so rich with, with content. So on you know uh, page four, we see those dirigible uh, balloons that that you know we, you see throughout. On page five, in that middle panel, I, I see some trash from the from the Gunga Diner. And the nostalgia cologne posters, the 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 end is nigh, you know right. Rorschach handbills, the the Ozymandias poster. I just, it's it's really a remarkable thing. It, it doesn't seem like one line, uh, you know, is is there, there's there's nothing, no useless uh, work done on the, everything. Seems to be very deliberate and. Uh, their their hard work really really paid off with with the final uh, product and and it, they they totally were able to create this this immersive world uh, that that we sort of really just get drawn into. Yeah, that's something we've really noticed on our analysis too. Is that there are no accidents here in this book? I mean, everything means something else. You, you know what I mean? Like even the I mean, take your example on page five in the background on the on the billboard there. You have pale horse. Which is you know what death rides, Kristallnacht, which was the night the Nazis destroyed all the you know, the Jewish part of the, all the towns, um, you know the Ozymandias. Just like you were saying, everything is 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 connected. And we keep finding like, as we uh, go through these issues that you know if we see something in the background, say hey, is that referencing something else? And you know ninety nine times out of a hundred, it, it usually is. You know, like we always say, there are no accidents in this book. Right. Yeah, I thought it was funny that the pale horse signs say sold out. <laughs> which you know, when, I wonder if they're trying to. to if there's some hidden hidden meaning there that you know, a they're sold out, which means <clears throat> you know the, the, the huge crowd, you know, you, you know people everywhere, and we'll see that kind of come to fruition um, l- later on in issue twelve. Um, but but also sold out is in the terms of you know being sellouts. So I, I, I kind of took that as possibly meaning you know kind of going both ways. 
And also, you know, this is the band that um, the Not Tops that with that hairstyle, the guys that took out Hollis Mason, are like you know into a complete frenzy about too. And I think that it's weird that like the entire uh, backlog of Easter eggs and add-ons and hints and tells come into into panel four here of the entire book because I can't think of anything that, that they left out here in this alleyway. But once you hit 11 and 12, I mean, you you completely lose all of the little tells and, and Easter eggs and stuff because it's I, I think 11 and 12 are very fast-paced for the amount of yeah. work that they have to do explaining everything else. I mean, you've got the eight, eight, eight or so splash pages at the beginning of 12, but, I mean... I almost want to say that, like, panel four, this is almost like one deep breath before the plunge when Dan and, and Rorschach, well, head on up north. Yep. One last thing in that middle middle panel. Uh, all the way on the right, uh, even to the right of the ladder, that half poster that you can see is the gay women against rape, the guar that we talked about with Darth BX on the forums. But uh, mm-hmm. that's the poster oh, that yeah. Joey was trying to have hung up, you know, by with, the newsstand. Uh, Bernard. Right. Man, that's that's amazing, and that band Guar must be named after <laughs> after it's that. Uh, it's it's got to be now. I'll have to research it harder. You talk about <laughs> you know like history repeating repeating itself. When's the last time we saw Rorschach break in to a house? It was or it was the comedian's apartment, and uh, he's doing the same thing here, but he's breaking into his own place on the very last panel on page five. That you know, yeah. it's not an exact replica, obviously, but it's it's that's almost like the first time we see him, and yeah. here we see Walter Kovacs doing it, not Rorschach. Well, it's interesting too. You know, again, we get the juxtaposition of what's going on in the panel versus what's being said. Or we get on on the the uh, sixth panel um, on five, where he says, "Some of us have always lived on the edge, Daniel. It's possible to survive there if you observe rules." And he's literally standing on the edge of the windowsill. Just hang, and then he said, "Just hang on by fingernails and never look down." And what's he doing? He's he's hanging on by one hand on the tip of his fingers, you know, looking into his his apartment. So, so again, what's you know what's going on in the panel is a is a is a parallel to to what's being said on, uh, you know, in frame. So then moving on to six, we find that he that Rorschach has a hidden stash of an extra uniform, and uh, you know which one that uh, is, Russ. The one he beat the dogs with. That's the blood stain. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. He makes sure to grab his journal, too. Yeah, yeah. He grabs Dear Diary. Grab- <laughs> Dear Diary, tonight I flushed a midget down the toilet. <laughs> he had it coming. Panels- <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Panel 6 is a total uh, uh, recall to uh, Rorschach's own origin story, that kid with that look on his face with the tears streaming down. It's, it almost looks exactly like Rorschach's own face when he was telling his own story to the psychiatrist back in issue seven, I think it was. Right, and yeah. I took it. I took it as that's why he stopped. Yeah, you know, he was oh, yeah. about to. He was about to go after this woman and, and you know lay into her or do whatever, and then you know having that flashback of what it was like when he was a kid. Right. Kind of he's, de- he, he's definitely reflecting right there in panel seven. Right. If you look at the landlady's kids too, she's got three kids and one of the kids is black. And this, and I mean, and that's not to that's not to say that you know multicultural relationships aren't you know acceptable. Of course they are, but I think that's meant to show that she's had multiple 
um, baby daddies more than anything. You know what I mean? Because well, oh, yeah, yeah. Rorschach calls her out on on panel five. Yeah, I, I think that's when, that's the reason there. Go ahead. And that's funny too that you know he, everything you know with Rorschach is a conspiracy, and you know he you know, he goes on about how you know she, she called him out on TV and she said no, she was misquoted, even though they caught her on camera saying it. And then, you know, Dan's telling him to leave it, and he, he says, how much money did they pay you to lie about me? So, he, you know, right off, he's convinced that, you know, she didn't do it of her own. She wasn't just, you know, kind of glory-seeking. You know, somebody paid her to, to tell those lies. And, and you know, he, again, the conspiracy-mindedness um, comes out in him rather than just him just, you know, which in reality probably what happened was, you know, Lady has a chance to get on camera and, you know, be on TV and, and have something to say about it. So she's got to say something a little fantastical. Moving on to page seven, we get the the views of um, Mr. Adrian Veidt's Antarctic um, getaway, and we notice he has his own private plane he's arrived on, his his pet Bubastis, which is some sort of uh, who knows what kind of a crossbred, inbred. It's like a tiger pony with rabbit leanings. <laughs> and then Duh, it's obviously a liger. They're bred for their magical capabilities. Oh. <laughs> nice. Anytime you can get a Napoleon Dynamite reference in a Watchmen episode, you're doing all right. That's gold. That's gold right there. But we notice when you know, as he, in the middle on that middle panel, we see this a lot where we get this this um, you know three panels on top, three panels on bottom, one piddle, one one piddle, one panel in the center layout in this issue it's it, it's 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 been there a few times already or we get the opposite where we get single panel top single panel bottom three in the middle um so again similar you know similar layout styles repeated throughout the issue but um but on the middle of that panel we notice that again we get the the pyramid symbol but also it almost looks like the letter v you know for vite you know of course repeated you know just just over and over and over again and it also kind of maintains the whole period of pyramid uh you know egypt you know egyptology kind of kind of thing going on and, of and course, actually all, russ i'm like really jumping on you all over tonight i'm sorry go ahead that's what it do it's good it's all good and also it's like a like a for adrian a v a v it's it's that in the inverse too oh yeah yeah no that's a good point and you can see the gordian knot uh picture on the fourth panel and likewise um, you know, we've seen Bubastis before that when um, Adrian had all the action figures, I think that was in one of the prose pieces. Uh-huh. And we're at Karnak right now, his temple. I'm, I'm, I'm looking up the translation stuff here. Karnak describes a vast conglomeration of ruined temples, chapels, pylons, and other buildings. It's located near Luxor, and it's anci- it, this was ancient Egyptian, Egyptian for the most selected of places. So you definitely have that elitist vibe coming from Adrian uh, with this. And, of course, there's all the sarcophagi and, well, Adrian's gigantic screen of monitors um, at the bottom of the stairs, too, on panel four. Yeah. It really speaks to Adrian's ego, too, that he would have his own initials on everything. And he'd have this giant place just for him, you know what I mean? And three attendants taking his every clue, you know, helping him change clothes as he walks. It just really speaks not only to his intelligence, but also his own ego and self-absorption. The last time we saw him, too, he was attended by a secretary, another kind of helper, but in the corporate atmosphere. And he's always being, well, attended to because of his power and 
in position in life. Plus, if you look at where Karnak's situated, way, way, way up north, I mean, it really is a contradiction. I wouldn't say hypocritical, but it is a contradiction. Here you have that which is supposed to be in the, in the desert in the frozen Arctic tundra. I thought it was in Antarctica. I guess I was yeah, wrong about south. that. No, it's Antarctic. It would be south. It's yeah, cold. It'd be south Pole. I don't, I don't <laughs> teach geography. Sorry, I teach English. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. Mm. Well, I know. We wouldn't pass those state tests. <laughs> what do we know about these, these uh, handlers? I know in uh, the supplemental information uh, for issue 11, we, we find out that, that they're Viet Cong refugees. But uh, do you guys have any sort of speculation as to what, wh- why they would be there or – is there is there anything that I'm missing regarding these guys? I've, I've I've read the book a few times to try to figure out the the significance of these two characters. Not that I've been able to to determine. Yeah, there is a scene later on where they all free death, isn't there? In the uh, after he opens the arboretum. Yeah, it's when, not a major spoiler. So <laughs> at the end of this one, at the yeah, they, of the next? yeah, they they get snuffed out. I, if ahead. I had to guess, I would say like that. If he's experimenting on genetics to make bubastis, then maybe he's experimenting on cloning because these guys look exactly alike. They dress exactly alike, and their entire life is to is to um, you know serve him. So maybe he made his own servants. I don't know. It's just pure speculation on my part, though. I just got kind of like a weird servant because think of all the servants in comics. There's Jarvis. There's Alfred. If you go back to Funky Flashman, the supervillain, he had uh, House Roy who helped him, uh, you know, battle Mister Miracle and other new gods and, and things like that. I I just seemed that you know they look like a bunch of red shirts from Star Trek, is what I could tell you. <laughs> yeah, Sulu. Then moving on to. To page eight, we see him sitting at his wall of monitors. Um, you know, which at the you know in the eighties that was a big deal. You know, nowadays it wouldn't be. You know, you can go into any Best Buy and see you know this kind of display. But you know, for for back at the time, that was very you know telling of of status and money and you know power and all that kind of thing to have. You know, all these multiple feeds coming in. You know, for him to look at all at once, and he's you know he's making determinations. And you know, purchases based on what he's seeing in the you know in the pop culture realm, just based on what you know what the what the mood and and what the the flavor of the country is. You know, he's he's determining you know what stocks to buy and sell, and you know what markets to get into and out of, and all that kind of stuff, just by looking at you know movies and television and the news and and advertisements and things like that. It was interesting that you know he's. Knowing what's coming, he's not. You know, his focus here isn't on the news. You know, it's not on world events. It's on you know everything. You know, he's literally looking at everything. Yeah, they call it like uh, what's that called? Zeitgeist, spirit of the times. Like what's what, what's what's happening in culture? What's what's happening as a result of culture? What did those? It's like what does one plus one equal? In, in this, like, how's everything shaking out? When's Armageddon happening? And let me ask you guys this. When the first, when you read this the first time, at this point, did you know Adrian was not who he espoused to be? John, I know you read this recently, uh, a couple months back. So, like, like when you were going through this chapter in, in 11-2, like, did you get the supervillain vibe from Adrian? Or what, what was your response to, the, to this? Um, I definitely knew something was going on with him that was different, um, but I don't. I don't think I would have pegged him for how the book turns out. 
at this point, but th- there was definitely a vibe of something else going on with him. I, I um, knew he was something going on with him because somebody told probably me the best back. I could say it definitely didn't. Uh, it it didn't give away the ending for me. I'll I'll leave it at that. I uh, I knew there was something going on with him because back in issue one, somebody told me that he was the one behind it. Also, <laughs> <laughs> zing. I didn't. You know when I I was. I guess I when I first read it, I didn't know. I I, I guess I wasn't looking for the trick ending kind of thing to it. And I, my reading of comics at that time um, was not as critical, so I just tend—I tended to kind of read things as face value because that's pretty much the way, you know, or for the most part that they'd always been. So I wasn't really looking for anything, you know, more than a straightforward, you know, somebody pulling the strings from behind the scenes kind of thing. Um, so it really wasn't until towards the end of the issue when, when you know, right before, pretty much right before they announced, you know, who was behind it, where I kind of got it clued in. But at this point, I, w- I would say no. Just while we're on page eight, um, if, if you look at the bottom panel where you see the back of Adrian and Bubastis and he's looking at all of the screens a little bit more up close than the other panels, um, there's like extra tape reels under the recording machine and you get the Fallout logo Yep, that's yep. kind of uh, transposed onto it. And this is one of those uh, scenes, too. I guess it's taken from a side angle, um, which is also one of the, the original promo pieces that they had before the series came out that was, that has been reproduced as a movie promo you know where they've they've re you know they've recreated that shot you know of the, of the promo of him sitting in front of all the you know TV screens in the chair with you know Bostas beside him mm-hmm. yeah uh, Dave Gibbons I think originally drew those promos in uh, the 80s for the comic and then they reinterpreted them as uh, photos for the movie is that yeah. what you're talking about yes yes yeah exactly I've even seen one produced it, reproduced as a Lego. I've even seen this reproduced in the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Vis-a-vis. Moving on to page nine. Um, it, it, it's interesting where they, you know, Rorschach and, and um, Dan kind of have this, this exchange back and forth about, um, you know, Rorschach is tired of, you know, being underwater. He wants to, to, to basically go crack some skulls and, you know, Dan is, you know, kind of saying, no, we need to, you know, we, he needs to basically let his computer do the, do the working for him. Um, but, you know, I, th- I thought it was interesting that, you know, they're, they're down. It's like, it, even in the, even though they're down in the muck, you know, kind of in, in the mud and, and everything else, that they're still, he's still using his technology. And Dan's, you know, in the muck, so to speak, and, but using technology. And Rorschach speaks about being in the muck as you know you know you know beating people's heads in and not just you know sitting around waiting for it to happen we noticed too that the um the squiggly uh word balloons are back once he gets his mask the on the moment the mask goes on exactly his face yep. right so he says all i need it's it, the squiggly uh word balloons are back and this is where you know two on nine this is where you know dan is really starting to get into trying to piece this thing together and really see what's you know going on and going back all the way to the comedian's death and you know how he mentioned that you know there, there, he saw something on an island, um, and uh, you know it had to do with the, the plot against John, Do- you know Doctor Manhattan, and you know his computers are basically giving him results. This is you know this is almost like a very Batmanish moment, you know where you know where he's feeding all his data into a you know a, a computer or supercomputer to assist him with you know being a detective and and using the technology to kind of um, help him with you know with some of his his detecting skill. 
and to try and get an answer as to what's going on. I think it also is is just a little tool that uh, Alamore put in place to make Night Owl seem a little bit more passive. And you know, a few pages later, we'll get we'll get a pretty pretty good payoff when we see a reversal rules. But I, I won't skip ahead too head with too too far with that. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it is a it is a very good setup to what we'll see. I love how Rorschach's default setting is. Let's go break some necks. I, I love that yeah. about his character. And how many times can this be said? This is the last hurrah, you know, for Rorschach as far as his journey goes when he goes back to Happy Harry's, you know? Yeah. And I might add uh, a return to form since he's been in prison, you know? Yeah, he's getting, you know, he's he's been locked up for a while and, and you know, has been out of the game. And so he's he's anxious to get back in it. You know, he's, he's got his face back. He's got his costume back. Um, he's got his old partner back. You know, he's he's ready to, to get after it. It really speaks to what we were talking about before in terms of, uh, you know, the how Watchmen kind of paved the way and, and how the, the people that tried to copy it really didn't get it right. You know, Rorschach as the antihero perfectly works. You know, with what Adam just said, he, his default mode is to go break necks and he's impatient and he's ready to go. And, you know, how many antiheroes came after Rorschach that just got ridiculous with, you know, the Punisher and how they started to write Wolverine. And, you know, I'm sure we could go on and on. Um, and, no, you know, they just never got it like Rorschach. Yeah. Even Venom to some degree, you know. Right. And then it's and then we get the, the very interesting thing happened at the bottom of 10 where Dan's trying to set him straight. You know, they're kind of going back and forth about where they think this thing needs to go and Rorschach is trying to convince him, you know, that they really need to stick on the, the path of the mask killer, that, that this this is the key. And then Dan's trying to explain to him, well, maybe, you know, what if there is no mask killer? And, um, you know, what if this is all, you know, because they came across some accident? And then, you know, they, again, they go back and forth. And, you know, uh, Rorschach kind of intimates that maybe Dan's being a little lazy, and then Dan kind of jumps back down on him, you know, kind of just, get, you know, really starts yelling at him. Um, and then immediately kind of feels bad about it. You know, he says, look, I'm you know, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. You're right. We should, you know, we shouldn't be down here looking at all this stuff in the dark. We need to, we do need to hit the streets. And then the interesting thing I find here at the bottom of 10 is that, is that Rorschach apologizes to him. You know, he, he basically says, you know, you're right. You are a good friend. You know, I know that. And then, and then, they, you know, kind of holds his hand out for him to shake it, which is a very un-Rorschach-like thing. And, and part of me saw this as Rorschach is used to or has been used to for a long time with people cowering away from him um, and backing down from him. And here's Dan, who, you know, I don't think could hold his own against Rorschach in a, in a fight just because of the way Rorschach fights. But he basically jumped back at him and, you know, kind of jumped down his throat about, you know, about, you know, the intimations that he was making. And then what happens? Rorschach, is, you know, you know, apologizes to him and holds his hand out in friendship. Um, which I thought was was kind of interesting. I think this is the first time somebody. I mean, he calls him out and says, "Calls him. He's he's his friend. You know, he says, you know how hard it is being your friend. I don't think maybe Rorschach has ever heard that before. You know, or Dan certainly put it in those words like that. And actually, actually come out, come out and say it. You know, I'm your friend. And, and that, I think that actually got through to Rorschach a little bit. If you take a look at that, the the artwork on panel five where where he does say that word. Uh, Rorschach looks legitimately startled. It's amazing how with that 
with that uh, mask, Gibbons is able to convey some some emotion with uh, with the character. Uh, another interesting thing that I thought I would point out it's it's been taken for granted. Uh, we've seen it so many times, but the first three panels, the way it's it's really one panel broken up into three parts. It's like three different chunks of time. Uh, mm-hmm. Th- this this wasn't done that much uh, back in these days. This this might be one of the earliest times that that um, this sort of storytelling technique was used, with the exception of probably uh, Will Eisner or uh, or Frank Miller, uh, to to be honest about it. But you didn't see you didn't see that too too often back then. Absolutely, I even noticed it recently. You know, I'm sure we've seen it many many times before. But I remember recently reading Grant Morrison's Batman Run re- um, the last couple of few days and. And um, and notice a similar kind of style where you see, you know, one big panel split up into multiple pieces, but yet it's it's one image, but yet it represents different points in time. So, so you know, definitely it's it's been carried forward. Then moving on to eleven, it's interesting that you know, Rorschach holds you know holds out his hand to Dan, they shake, and then Dan has to physically remove like separate them, like he's he's holding Dan's hand and until Dan starts to feel a little uncomfortable. Did, did you guys take anything away from that at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rorschach is uh, a, sh- a social retard. It reminds me of uh, my, my girlfriend. She watches that, that uh, show Dexter where that guy has to like try to he, – yeah. he's a serial killer who, who kills serial killers, and he has to try to sort of put on a beard of being a normal guy, and, and he does stuff that he thinks that normal people should do. And uh, he's, you know, he's he, he's basically sexually impotent, and uh, you know, just just acts the way he thinks people should act. But it it always comes off a little wrong and weird. Really, because I I thought Rorschach was the normal one in this one, and Dan was the weirdo. Overall, you mean in the sequ- in the sequence here? All right, Adam. I'll I'll come next time I see you. I'll I'll shake your hand and hold it a little bit too long. We'll see how you feel. <laughs> just as long as you get your hand off my thigh, Ken, that's fine with me. <laughs> I see Rorschach kind of is, you know, he's he's breaking this guy's balls for for pages, and he he finally, you know, gets gets talked back to, and and uh, he develops a weird kind of respect for the guy. It's it's a little bit masochistic, where you're sort of prodding people to snap at you. And then, you know, it's almost like they pass a test or something. Uh, I, I wouldn't consider that normal behavior. I I almost took it as, and, and I don't know if I was maybe reading too much into it, it's just, you know, it, it's always been a little ambiguous as far as Rorschach's uh, lifestyle choice. Um, the way he responds to, you know, men and women in a, in a sexual manner, um, the way it makes him uncomfortable, you know, when he sees, you know, particularly men and women together. I, I wondered if if that was saying something like that. If if, if maybe it was it was intimating a little bit that that Rorschach might be you know gay. Well, you know, there's something there's something going on. If you look at the dialogue, you know, you get that mm, or whatever. Like his hand is really getting squeezed, and he's got to physically pull it away. Yeah, that's weird. You know, that's <laughs> that's not even like shaking your hand too long. That's like he's giving him like you know. He's giving him a good grip there, and Dan has to, like, you know, struggle a little bit to separate it. You know, you can see he has to use his other hand to hold on so he can pull it out. Yeah. But you it, know, it that's just kind of weird. 
<laughs> yeah, it just it, it was almost like they're sharing a moment kind of thing, and Dan finally clicked and was like, "Okay, enough of that." Um, or maybe Dan's just like a tub of goo, and Rorschach's just stronger than him. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's that too. Yeah, could, could be, or you know, it, it it could be more like Ed was saying, in that he's just you know so socially awkward. He just he doesn't know you know how to shake hands with somebody or how long to shake or you know you know when to let go and all that kind of stuff too. But you know. Maybe, you know, again, maybe I'm just reading a little too much into it. But I just, I just thought it was interesting when you com- compare and contrast that to his, in the way he reacts to typical male-female relationships. So, How about we just wait till we see the movie and we see how they do it? <laughs> you know, speak, speaking of the movie and speaking of, you know, all these scenes that we've seen that are, uh, you know, oh, I want to see that panel on the movie. We've already seen this bottom panel on page 11. That was right in that original teaser trailer of the Alice ship emerging from the river. Yeah, I think it's in every trailer. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic too. I mean, it it really right down to that buoy. I think that buoy's even in there as well, as as the ship emerges. Yeah, I, I think, think so. Right. Yeah, but yeah, it's just it, excellent. You know the way it was done. I mean, that's that's one of the first images we saw in the first trailer. Right? You know, was it you know coming you know strong out of the water like that and then taking the turn? It was just excellent. And you know, and it's funny too because I I think this is you know the, not to get too far off track, but the owl ship is one of those things where I thought of you know when you kind of think of. Of the of the comic and how that translates to film, you're like an owl ship, really? You know, honestly. And then you see it on film or see it, you know, in person when they showed, you know, pictures of it and stuff. It's like, you know, it they, they were they pulled it off. You know, it really it it came across well. I remember back shortly after San Diego, I think it might have been Buzz put some video up on the forum when he was there and. Uh, he got some shots close with the owl ship and the interior, and it's all the details that we've seen, you know, drawn on the page were, were there uh, really in the in the ship they had at, at San Diego. I don't know if that's still out there or not. If you can find it, but it was a really uh, was a cool video to see. And even you can hear him and his awe and his voice as he's seen. He's like, "Oh my gosh, look at this!" So you're right; they really did pull it off. What nicely? Then we get on twelve and thirteen, we get almost two full pages. Um, of the Black Freighter, which which is is unusual because we haven't really um, really seen that much of it um, in a row, and, it, and it's the first Black Freighter we've seen for for a while now. Um, and we get the continuing story of the 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 guy that was stranded on the island. He's working. He's desperately trying to work his way home to warn the village of the uh, Black Freighter coming to to take them. And as we see on this guy's journey, he's become more and more and more and more deranged. Um, and he, as he gets as he gets closer to to where he's going, and it, and it's funny. Once again, he's he, in the comic, or in the in the Black Freighter. He this guy's sitting on the beach, and he sees two riders approach um, on horseback. So again, we get this whole you know two riders are approaching theme um, of the book, flowing into um, into the Black Freighter, and his immediate his immediate thought is that well, if if this guy was able to take you know, his gal passed a town full, you know, that, that's been, in, you know, basically taken over by pirates and, and thieves and murderers, then if he was given free passage, he must be in on it as well, or he must be guilty in some way. And, and the first, his first reaction is, is to kill him um, and, then, and then strangle the woman because, you know, she'll, she'll tell. So, you know, again, it's, it's, he's, he's becoming that which, you know, he abhors. I mean, his whole point of the journey is to save the town, and he's he's come back and and is killing you know every everybody and everything in, in his wake. You know, he's made a raft out of dead bodies. You know, it's just all these things. Um, you know, as this guy flows more and more into madness, 
it's a uh, not to say too to put too fine a point on it, but it's a it's a, a pretty uh, good metaphor for the uh, the end game of uh, the the story as well. Yeah, and then you know once again we get um, you know, we get a lot of parallels. We start to get the parallels on on thirteen of you know what what's being said in the pages of the Black Freighter mirrors what's you know what's happening you know what, what's happening on panel. You know, we get, and then of course on on the third panel of thirteen, we get two people riding up on bicycles. So again, two more riders approaching the approaching the newsstand and coming up to to Bernie. Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, yeah. I missed that on bicycles. That's great. What is that on that last panel on thirteen? I, I know it's a um, a poster for the day the Earth stood still. Mm-hmm. What is that actually on? Like, you to- is that a sign? Like Utopia the was the movie theater that was sure the day the earth stood still. Yeah, yeah, it's the theater. One of the corners there where the newsstand is, as we see it from different holes, uh, one of the corners there is the Utopia Theater, and they're showing the day the earth stood still. I think it's the same place that Pale Horse and Crystal Knocked are playing uh, on New Year's Eve or whatever. You see Bernie's in the bottom, the very, very, very bottom of that, his little head's poking uh-huh. out. That's cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, the restaurant Dan Laurie had is across the street from Utopia. In the, one of the mirror image pages where you're seeing them through the mirror, you can see Utopia in the mirror. That's amazing. They even got the geography the sort of down pat. Yeah, it would be interesting to map out what we know and see, you know, like this building is across the street from that, and this is next to that. You could probably almost map out like a couple of blocks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. almost surprised that it, it's not out there somewhere that somebody hasn't posted, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, some sort of rendering or some sort of, you know, map, you know, of it. It's in uh, Gibbon's book, Watching the Watchmen. We'll put it up on our show notes on the forum thread. I mean, how, how tight everything is happening together. I mean, you've got, you know, we've got Utopia now, the restaurant, the newsstand, the Gunga Diner, you know, and uh, Rorschach's Drop Point, all within the same, the same intersection of each other. Don't forget the Institute for Extraspatial That's right. Studies. That's right. That's also on that corner. Moving on to, to 14, we see... We see um, them showing up, Dan and um, Rorschach showing up at um, at the bar to go ask some questions and you know pound some skulls. And of course, when they when they walk in, it's like everybody immediately stops and looks at you know a because it's Rorschach and he's supposed to you know he just busted out of prison. And b there's you know basically what amounts to two costume characters that just walked into the front door of the bar. Panel three is a really good uh, example of. Uh, John Higgins' genius, because uh, imagine looking at that panel in black and white. You might not necessarily think of the, the guy at the bottom as being one of the main focal points, but uh, with Higgins' use of color, he really draws attention to that guy. And you could sense that the character is even sort of uncomfortable and, and nervous. He, he just puts a lot of emphasis by that, that stark yellow on the left of the character. Really draws your eye to him. Yeah. Something Higgins has done before too that we've seen is when there's some uh, some intense moment or an intense moment of violence, they'll go to just a, a plain yellow background, and we see that again on this pit too. Yeah, where you know, and and it's it's interesting because sometimes I, I think I've associated with in other books, um, especially kind of in the '80s, '90s, more so I guess in the '90s, we associate single colored or unicolored backgrounds as almost laziness, you know. Where you can't discern any um, any effect behind it, it just seems like particular artists just didn't want to draw backgrounds, or they you know were drawing six books and didn't have the time or whatever. So it was almost like a cheat. 
Um, but I, I don't get the same vibe, you know, when you look at, at, at this, at this book, you know, you see it's done for effect because there's so much detail and, and because of the, you know, the, you know, everything is very, um, particular. Yeah. The rest of the art has so much detail into it that when they do go to a blank uh, background like that, it's very noticeable. It's very yeah. effect. And then of course, when, uh, when Rorschach, you know, basically intimates that he's just going to beat, start beating on people until they tell him what he wants to know, you know, and, and because everybody's connected with the underworld and that, you know, they, they, they don't want to, you know, say they, you know, they talk for nothing. He'll, he'll be sure to, you know, to, to torture them, you know, to make it look good, if nothing else, for when they, you know, when they have to give it up. And of course, everybody immediately in the restaurant in the bar turns around and, and to this one guy that's, that's at the bottom there. I just I just thought that was cool where you see, you know, basically in panels, pretty much in, in three, four, and five, but but particularly in four and five where, you know, Rorschach and, and Night Owl are, are standing in their exact same position. They haven't you know moved, and everybody in the restaurant is still positioned mostly where they were. It's just they're all facing you know towards this guy. So again, you get this whole. Panel four, you get some dialogue in the way they're faced, and then panel five, you get you get no dialogue at all, but you know exactly what's being said. Yeah, and it it uh, creates an uncomfortable moment where you don't know how much time is passing. It's like uncomfortable silence. You don't know yeah. how how much time is passing with them just staring at this guy. One, one notable difference of you said they're they're pretty much in the same position. The the woman was very clear to get out of out of the way and get get out of the way from being in between them and him. Yeah. I can, I can, you know, this is another one of those you can see in the movie this this happening and just kind of getting a chuckle out of the out of the audience to see everybody kind of, you know, when you see it kind of visually and everybody kind of make that move, you know, it just I I, I I'm another moment I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it has, hey, it has know, some good comedic value here even too. Hey, yeah. you know what else we missed? His name's Happy Harry, like the smiley face. I didn't even think of that till just now. Man, we cannot give away these trades for the life of us. They're, they can't. There's no way these people can win. <laughs> you know what I like in the uh, the top middle panel, uh, panel two of page fourteen. I never noticed it before, but Dan is flipping the open and closed sign over in the background. Nice. Oh yeah. It's just a nice yeah. detail. Like you know, it reminded me of um, is is it? It's Bronx Tale, not Goodfellas. When it, uh, they go into the bar, now you can't leave. Yeah, you know that scene with the bikers in the bar, and they 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 come in to beat the crap out of them with baseball bats. Yeah, oh, it's kind of reminded me of that movie in a long time. It's interesting that you brought that up because uh, on on the next page, uh, not not to jump ahead too far, but I see a lot of uh, films sort of taking from <clears throat> the last couple panels where there's the reversal rules between the good cop and bad cop. Almost every buddy movie. Uh, in in the mid '80s, early '90s, had had this same exact scenario happen, where the where the bad cop is is you know sort of being reasonable, and then the uh, the good guy snaps a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you and it even it's funny because it even it even starts on the bottom of fourteen, where you know Dan is saying, "All right, everybody, stay calm. We'll keep this. You know, we'll try and keep this brief." Um, you know, and and so it's even setting it up more, and then and then of course we get to the bottom when. Um, you know, we flip over to the not top that, that Dan's talking to and he tells him about, you know, that Mason guy's murder. And then that, you know, Dan just totally flips because up to this point, he doesn't know, you know, that that's happened. He doesn't, he doesn't know that, that Hollis, that Hollis has been killed. Another great moment of, uh, 
Higgins highlighting the uh, the the these the the focal point. It's almost like the the knot top has a spotlight on him whenever you know the heat's coming down on him. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan is flipping out if Rorschach has to come over and calm him down. Yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. You are definitely flipping out if that's your sanity. <laughs> and then we get, you know, one of the things when, when Rorschach is talking to this guy, um, you know, he he says, got offered the errand my, by my boss, freight coordinator at Pyramid Deliveries. And Dan goes, ah. So, again, it's starting to come together. He's, you know, again, they talk about Pyramid Deliveries and, you know, He's making note of these things, or, or you know, thinking about them, kind of to kind of pull it together. Another, and, and again, another clue to the to the audience, you know, as to what's going on. And then we see, you know, when when Rorschach is talking to him, he also talks about all the basically the other freight handlers and all the and basically everyone associated with the attack on Adrian Veidt, um is dead or is being killed off. And it, and he, you know, this guy is trying to say, well, they're passing some of them off as accidents. And, you know, he just doesn't buy any of it. And Rorschach, you know, is surprised by that. You know, he didn't know what's going on. So, again, he's been in jail for a while. And because he hasn't been able to kind of keep on the trail of the whole mass killer thing, you know, not all of this has escaped him. I mean, I would think if if Rorschach hadn't been um, imprisoned, then he would have, you know, been following along to go, okay, they killed, you know, the comedian. John has been exiled. Moloch's dead. Now, you know, they've, if, if they've gone to, you know, they attack Adrian, he would be following all these separate leads. And being conspiracy-minded, he would totally have jumped on to the fact that, you know, everybody related to this to this attack on, on Adrian is kind of, you know, is getting off left and right. Um, but being that he was taken out of the picture, all of that, you know, slipped by him until now. Another fun little tidbit is... Um page 15 the bottom middle panel in in the background you see that bald guy with the glasses and it's the same bald guy who we last saw i think in issue one page 16 in the middle panel so they're they're keeping this cast of characters involved you know in place and you know we, we still bump into the same people every now and again yeah and it's so incidental unimportant but they still do it i it's really remarkable does the not top guy have a band-aid on his forehead it look, it, either, yeah, yeah. It looks like that's what it is. That or a piece of tape. In panel three, it it looks like a band aid, but then when you look at panel five and six, it almost looks like a piece of tape. I think he's one of the guys that uh, Dan and Lori took out a few nights before. Oh, it could be. And then moving on to to sixteen again, we get more of this role reversal where, you know, again we talked about just a minute ago where Dan is you know beating up this knot top because he wants to find out what's. You know, who murdered, who murdered Hollis? Why did it happen? You know, and, and he's he you know he's he's just not gonna he's gonna beat it out of this guy if he needs to because him and Hollis were just so close. Moving on to the to the middle the middle panel on sixteen. The name of the bar is called Happy Harry's. Um, one interesting thing to or that I noted was and and this would have predated or, or been right or well maybe I think it would have predated. Um, Watchmen, yeah, it, it would have was the the kind of the bar hideout in the X Men that they always went to in in Westchester was called Harry's Hideout, and it was like a kind of a bar and grill place, and and every inevitably they ended up you know tearing the place and ended up having to pay to, to have it rebuilt, and it was even busted up 
in in one of the more recent issues. So I, I didn't. I just thought that was kind of an interesting tie, um, and it, and it could be nothing at all, but but it's kind of interesting how they both they're both new Harrys. I like the contrasting uh, um, interrogation styles between Rorschach and uh, Night Owl. Rorschach is almost clinical and just very controlled and calm and just applies the pressure to the one hand or whatever, whereas Night Owl is ready to just grab this guy, beat the crap out of him, get the owl ship, bomb the whole neighborhood, you know. It's just a total contrast between the two different uh, two different styles. It's like bad cop and then worse cop. <laughs> and I like how they, uh, at, the, at the bottom of 16, um, you know, when Dan says, you know, I can't believe he's dead. I remember Adrian was telling me that the Egyptians regarded death as a voyage. And then Rorschach goes, hmm, nice idea if you can afford to go first class with pharaohs, but judging by our departures, most of us travel steerage. His whole his whole perception of death is even you know is, is even down and depressed. Has Rorschach been responsible for for calling the the owl ship previously, or is uh, Night Owl just so flustered at this point in time that that Rorschach thought that he should take that responsibility to get the ship over there? I think does Dan ask no, him too? He, he actually tells him. He says uh, he says uh, he tells him him. He said, "Take this and bring Archie down." I. He goes. I can't see. So yeah, he tells him to take the oh, I take the take the remote and and go ahead and bring him down because yeah, he's just so he's he's just so messed up. He just can't even he can't even focus on it. I mean, obviously he said he can't see, so I'm sure he's he's probably crying. I would guess. I love the way they talk about the pharaohs uh, traveling steerage and all the stuff at the bottom of 16, and it segues right into the top of 17. Where we see yep. the, uh, the the ship with the pyramid symbol of the Veet Corporation and Pyramid Industries and all those other things, and there they are traveling, first class. I I yeah. love this this subplot, but is it going to be completely lost in the movie since since there's not going to be the the alien or whatever? I think we talked about this earlier in an earlier show. I think I think we think that yeah, this whole subplot with the whole. Max Shea, his disappearance, what these people are doing. I think, yeah, this is probably going to get clipped. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I absolutely love this, just just this idea of hiring all these like talented people to help construct the, your, your conspiracy. Oh, well. I guess they had a cut somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how they, you know, they talk about it, how, you know, they're, they're making a movie. You know, they all think that they're, you know, you know, they're really doing one thing, and they're actually doing something, something else. A lot of like highly secure, sensitive operations are handled this way. I, w- I w- where one hand doesn't exactly know what the other hand is doing. I, I was watching this thing about just um, how how they mint money at the at the uh, U.S. Treasury, and whenever they construct like a new dollar bill, there are, there are like seven to ten hands that go into just. Um, creating the template for for each dollar, and just just so that you know, one hand one person doesn't have all that information, so they can't forge the stuff themselves. So it's just interesting how this guy sort of employed all these people to, and and kept it kept enough secrecy up where these people are none the wiser. They think they're they're uh, you know just going to live in Fiji for the rest of their of their lives or something. My favorite part of this whole sequence is at the uh, the top of 18, where, I mean, before we'd seen the shadow of the two lovers as a graffiti uh, reminiscent of the shadows left after Hiroshima, and here we have two lovers in the middle of a giant explosion. 
I mean, de- definitely, yeah, one references the other, I'd imagine. Yeah. And then yeah. we have the little the little uh, squid sketch yeah. on page 18. Backing up um, slightly to 17, this is, again, where we see, like, the two panels representing the same, you know, basically the same camera angle showing a passage of time where, you know, the top panel... It's taken from from that angle. We see the bird on the you know on the, the the log that's that's embedded in the sand. The ship, you know, where people are still they're still boarding cargo and and things like that. And we cut away to activity going on on deck while we're listening to what you know the two folks are saying down below. And then we get the last panel taken from the same angle where the bird is flown off, the ship is left, but yet we still get it from exactly the same angle to kind of show that you know again that passage of time. And then, and then again, you know, we'll see that on 18, where we see, you know, again, one continuous image. Um, you know, we get three panels splitting up to make one continuous image, yet it shows the passage of time. You can see the moon as it, as it moves, you know, downward uh, into position. And on the first panel is the ship as, it, as it's almost completely uh, sunk. Um, and then the middle panel where, you know, we don't see it at all. And then the third panel where, you know, again, where we see it's it's definitely gotten later in that in that drawing that we saw um, earlier on, on, on panel one has has washed up to shore. So again, a great a great effect to show you know one image split up to show that passage of time again that we've seen so far. Yeah, it's, it's, go ahead, man. Um, the protagonist in the Black Freighter doesn't his ship. I mean, it doesn't blow up obviously, but the ship obviously. Um, you know, uh, crashes. So I think that there's this kind of like weird parallel between, well, Max Shea wrote about a shipwreck and literally a ship he was on is well wrecked. And yeah, it really like, I like the fact that we're at a beach, which is where the black freighter started. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, there's a lot of irony. This two page sequence on 17 and 18 with these, long horizontal panels are a pretty great sort of textbook on how to sort of construct a sequence of the passage of time where we're in these the long panels they they sort of represent probably one second of time it's a very particular moment but those last three panels uh, on page 18 where we see the moon as a as a as a sort of time device uh it's it's pretty remarkable stuff then as we as we move on to 19, we get, you know, here again, we're back. We're in Adrian's arena here, and every, you know, the, the, the color palette that's been chosen here is, is all purple. And we'll see this over the next several pages, that everything seems to have that purple wash to it, you know, while they're in, you know, Adrian's office space here. And then, of course, we get, you know, they're digging around, they're looking for, um, for things, and, and they're really convinced. It, it's really kind of funny. Is they're convinced that Adrian is going to be able to help somehow, some way, with their search, with what they're looking for, um, and to, to to play to play an integral part. And they have, and they're right. Little did they know. Yeah, they're they're exactly right. Um, not just not in the way they think. There you go. Uh, but yeah, it was at the bottom of nineteen. You know, once once I saw that pyramid on the bottom of the desk, that that's when I was like, aha, that's what's up. And it's funny how. Dan's kind of looking at it and, you know, kind of has his you know hand on his chin. So he's, he's starting to think something's up right now. Yeah, just, this this, this is the Batman slash Detective Comics moment right here, I think. Yeah. And it's also cool how they show, you know, starting, I guess, at the at the at the bottom of 19 on on panel five. 
um, where he's got all these trend lines and, and all this data analysis done on, you know, on all kinds of things. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, global population, nuclear hazard escalation index, environmental decline. You know, he's trying to he's, he's trying to find you know where these things converge, and you know it's showing you know it converges in the 90s, and here we are, 1985. So, you know, obviously the the whole point is to to, to shift that convergence, um, and the fact that he's got it all graphed out is is interesting to show. You know, you know what needs. You know, where do you move the pieces on the board to make you know to make things happen when you want them to? And here he's got his his roadmap to know if he you know pushes this line down and this line up and pushes this one over, then you know everything will converge. You know, on his on, you know when he sees it. And of course, moving on to to twenty and Rorschach is just. You know, I could totally see this again in the movie too, where he's just rambling, 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 and you know, Dan is basically trying to, you know, get busy and get to work while you know he's he's just kind of going on in in, in the in the background. It's weird considering these guys are such good uh, detectives that they don't come up with this earlier. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, Ozymandias has uh, patterned this whole thing after Ramses and and uh, you know, Egyptian motif. You'd think they put two and two together, you know, with pyramid industries. I think they did so much uh, awe, respect, or whatever word you want to put to it, toward Adrian, that they never wouldn't have come to that conclusion on their own. Um, although it seems so obvious to us, and as I'm reading it, I'm like, you know, come on, guys, put it together already. Uh, but it just seems that there's a respect there, you know, one of their own, and they're so caught up on the mass killer, at least Rorschach was, that you couldn't imagine one of them, one of their own, killing each other off. The biggest thing to throw them off was the fact that Adrian was attacked himself, you know. I mean, somebody shot at him, killed his assistant. I mean, he came close to death himself. So I think, you know, that that's the big, you know, the, the you know, kind of the big thing to throw it off. I would say that Adrian's preoccupation with ancient Egypt and stuff, of course, that'll be fleshed out in 11 and 12. But as far as Egypt as a culture of death, I think that that resonates a lot more for me reading it this time. I'm looking at the sarcophagi. I'm looking at everything else we mentioned in there. And if you talk about, you know, tells, I mean, I think this is the biggest one where you have like these uh, funeral type boats that have been all laid out. I mean, it's more or less, I mean, it, it, it's a very sterile environment. It's like going into a Mac store, but like it, it's, um, that, that's, that's what he's preoccupied with, death. But in, as Adrian explains everything as we get going, it's not so much death, but, well, that idea of longevity, life after death. And Adrian's act and ultimate message is really his own pyramid that he's built through the course of the of the of the no, of the graphic novel and the issues too. What are you going to say, John? I was going to ask you if you thought anything of the use of the word crisis when they're looking at the different things on the graph. You know, like it just seemed very coincidental calling it multiple crisis. Like a DC things going on. Yeah, just like I was wondering in '86 what point that stuff was at in DC and. You know, if he, if he, maybe he was making a point, or maybe, you know, maybe not. I just I figured I'd throw it out there. Well, I would say that before you tie that directly to the Crisis on Infinite Earths, and you know the subsequent you know tie-ins when DC had its 50th anniversary way back when, I think you have to look at what's been in the novel so far as far as Crisis. Do you remember? I think this was like issue five or six when the one uh, Bohemian went crazy and he killed his family because of the economy, right? 
I think that's I think that's the bigger indicator. Although I completely see where you're coming from, I have to look this up on the annotations. I think that's the bigger um, the bigger tell than the actual uh, DC universe right. tie, tie to things. However, uh, it's not going to surprise me if that does you know resonate. I, that's I didn't even think of that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, because it even says multiple crisis. Yeah, I couldn't even put my finger on what I thought it meant. I just thought it was too coincidental to use that phrasing. Speaking of um, crises and Final Crisis, um, after you know the result of Final Crisis, if you take a look at the solicitations for DC in the coming months, um, when Pete Tomasi, you know, who's doing Nightwing and Green Lantern Corps right now, uh, Pete's, uh, you know, has already well into his run on Batman and the Outsiders. And that will title will be Nick's, and they'll just call it the Outsiders, and we'll we'll toss that up on the thread. By the way, I just found a map. We'll put that on, on the forum thread too. Um, they have a new character for the Outsiders. It's like Metamorpho, the Creeper, and there's going to be an Owlman on the Outsiders team. Really, I think <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yes, interesting. So you know how we saw uh, Captain Matt, Cap- the Captain ah, Captain Adam esque. Dr. Manhattan-esque character and Superman Beyond, um, Watchmen's starting to leak. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's starting to leak. You know, the, the signs and the, the omens and portents are, are there. The secret missives are being read, and Watchmen is going to come through in the DC universe uh, f- faster than quicker. Let's put it that way. Yeah, especially if that movie ends up making, you know, two two fifty. You know, it, it'll, it'll bleed even a lot faster, I think. Haha, <laughs> bleed. I get it. Oh, I didn't even turn. That was no pun intended. Like, like the bleed and the and the crisis. Whole, that's pretty good. We're, we're gonna find the Watchmen happen on Earth twelve. <laughs> yeah. It's midnight. It's always midnight. Nice. Yeah, it's always midnight. If if that movie makes two fifty, Wonder Woman will be dating Dan Dryberg in no time. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a I did a book talk on Watchmen a couple weeks ago in my class, and you know we were talking about the book and in class and I threw a picture up about the doomsday clock that's at the university of Chicago. That's a real working clock that's moved closer to midnight based on real world events. Well, uh, that was the worst thing to do with 13 year olds because they're all like, Oh my gosh, is this real? I'm like, yeah, but it's not like ticking right now. (laughs) But, um, it's funny because, uh, with the new presidential transition team and, you know, reading stuff from the post and the, and the, and the New York times, uh, that the projected, um, if they were to more or less read the tea leaves of the chicken bones and see what's happening in the next 20 years based off of current world events, the chances of nuclear disaster to kind of mirror the Russia, the Russian Afghanistan thing that's happening in Watchmen right now is likely to increase exponentially in the next 20 years. Half or excuse me, which is like what maybe a fifth or potentially half of which could be during the new administration. If you know he gets reelected in four years or whatever. So like, Talk about art reflecting life and vice versa. Uh, you know, maybe Watchmen is the Easter egg and we're all headed toward Armageddon. I don't know. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> we're uplifting. That's all we are. That's right. Well, it's a, cheer- it's a cheerful story. We can't help but be, uh, be uplifting. I want to point out just a real deliberate reference to the two riders theme uh, with panel seven where, uh, where Night Owl almost guesses the password, but it says password incomplete. Do you wish to add rider? Ramsey's Roman numeral two. Oh yeah, nice catch. What do they mean when they say, "Do you wish to add Ryder"? 
Like I have no clue, but it's it's just the most deliberate uh, sort of reference to the title that that was done. Alan Moore was really great with subtly doing all this sort of suggestive stuff, but this is like the most like in your face. Like for for the kids who didn't see the two Jehovah's Witnesses and put two and two together with Night Owl and Rorschach going all over the place. Like like here's here's one for that that anybody should would see. Adding a rider is like. You know, like an like an insurance thing. If you add a rider for, you know, whatever. Like, say you have a homeowner's policy, you add a rider for electronics of, you know, say you got, you know, fancy TVs and all this other kind of stuff. You would add a rider to your insurance policy for, like, fifty or 60000 or whatever to cover all your, you know, cover whatever. It's, it's in addition to, you know, whatever would be standard to make sure that your stuff is covered. So I'm assuming, you know, what they're meaning here is do you want to add anything to this? Which the first thing I thought of is in computer ease, if your password is wrong, they're not going to say, "Hey, you're pretty close. Do you want to finish yeah, that off?" Yeah. You know, I mean, that's totally, totally threw me off. But, but I, I to, especially after what what Ed said, I, I totally get it now. I mean, it's you know, you got you got to let it go. <laughs> Do you guys with the um, absolute? Can you read uh, what's on the the desk um, in the middle of twenty one in the purple panel? There's like a name plate on the desk or something next to the computer. Um, it, it says Adrian Veidt, president. Okay. Yeah, yeah I c- you can't read it in the trade. I can't. You can, you can barely read it in the absolute. Yeah, I can make enough of letters to figure out. That's probably what, that's what it is. It looks like what they said. So. And hey, look, uh, he has a Veidt computer. At the bottom of 20, I just wanted to say real quick that uh, Rorschach says the same thing that Bernie the News Dealer said uh, a few issues ago in the final analysis. It's us or them. Okay. Yeah. And there's also, it looks like, I guess it's like a satellite dish or something on there. If you look on the fourth panel on the 21, it's it's like a clock that's in the background on the building right. on the right-hand side. And then, again, on the right, there's one right on, to lower right of Dan and one directly to the right of of uh, Rorschach. So, so moving on to 22, we get back to Rorschach's journal, um, which we haven't seen since issue 5. So pretty much once he got locked up, you know, the journal went away, um, and we haven't seen it since. So one of the things we find out here is that we're at November 1st, 1985. When the book started, we're at December 12th. So so we're 19, I guess 20 days. We're almost three weeks um, since the journey started. So that's... October you know, 12th. Keep, October 12th, I'm sorry. So just to kind of keep, you know, keep in mind how much time has passed since this all started into where we are now. Um again um, and this is the day after that Hollis Mason was killed so Hollis Mason was killed on Halloween so we're, we're you know one day later it's funny I'm just noticing now uh, that the mailbox says same day express because w- when I was rereading this before when you uh, I don't want to skip ahead but when you when you go to 24 they show the process of the letter being mailed uh-huh. You know, and I was saying to myself, oh, this got done in one day. You know, this is like an alternate reality uh, mail system. But <laughs> but now I'm realizing that the mailbox actually says same-day delivery, so it makes a lot more sense. In yeah, 23, we see the, the mail carrier carrying Rorschach's package. It's even marked urgent um, as he walks by, and he's like, he grabs a gazette from Bernie goes on his way. Right. Yeah. So then we, you know, we kind of get the the impression here the way he's writing in this journal. You know, a he says it's his last entry. Um, he's pretty sure he's not coming back, um, and he's even so sure he's not coming back that um, 
he's mail he's going to mail it off and he says um he's sending it to the only people that he can trust and we'll find out um in the end that he's he's sending or in in the next couple pages where he's sending it off to the to the new frontiersman all the news that you need to know yeah we follow the the package all the way from uh Rorschach to the one carrier to the main office and into the hands of Seymour yeah and I love that and we'll get to it and I love that ex- that exchange but but I thought it was funny how you know again Rorschach kind of rambles and that he even talks about how he had to deceive Dan in the journal in the entry you know deceive Dan um to go actually just mail off the letter then we move on uh, to um oh we see you know earlier we talked about where pale horse is playing they're actually playing Madison Square Garden because if we look at at the third panel on 22 there's a huge sign that says November 2nd pale horse in concert with crystal knock and it says Madison Square, and I'm assuming it's the rest of the Madison Square Garden. Right. Which kind of adds more credence when we see what happens to, to, to what's going on there. And, of course, the clock on, on MSG is is right before midnight on the on third panel as well. And that's the same clock we're going to see on page page one of uh, issue 12 when, when you guys get around to that. Yeah. So moving on to, to 23. Again, we get we go back to the to the black freighter, and again we get the juxtaposition of of what's you know what they're saying in the black freighter with what's being said in panel, and then he said you know perfect example Bernard says it ain't fair we didn't ask for no war there's no there's no justice in this world, and the the comment is unrecognizable in court's close I was the concealed implement of God's retribution so he's talking about there's no justice. And the character in the Black Freighter is talking about how he's the implement of retribution. So again, we get this juxtapositions where it says, you know, the next panel says he's all washed up, and we see, you know, there's basically a corpse that's, you know, washing up on the on the beach in the second panel. So we've kind of seen this whenever they whenever they have what's going on either in the Black Freighter and they have a, a panel of the of the real world, or we get quotes from the Black Freighter and in, in, in a panel that's going on. In the real world, we see that you know that juxtaposition is what's being said in one directly relates to what we're seeing in the other. So that takes us to 24, and basically what's going on in 24 is we just see the as we talked earlier the the movement of the package, um, you know Rorschach's journal, um, you know through all of its hands in the single day delivery to to take it to um, the new frontiersman where we find out that that's the the only place that that Rorschach could trust. Um, with his most precious document, um, and it's interesting how you know we talked earlier, you know, before that the new frontiersman is is kind of the right wing flavor of the news, and you know, outside their offices they've got you know, uh, you know, swastika that you know that's a scum sort of thing, and you know, it must be Nazi scum, and then off on the left hand side of panel four there it's a Sikh Heil, so you know, obviously they're they're you know, folks are there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of yeah. Then of course we see the package delivered to to Seymour and the editor who's kind of a hothead as we've seen earlier in the book, you know, it just starts, you know, yelling at him and uh you know, I, I think I thought it was funny that he you know, he tells him he starts reading the beginning, you know, Dead Dog in the Alley this morning, tired tread on burst stomach, which is how the how the whole book started? You know, it's and, interesting. Uh, it's actually not exactly the same language, though. It's like that dog carcass or something like that. Oh uh, yeah, 
Yeah, Dog Harkison Alley this morning, tire tramp or something. It's, it's, so either he's. I just wonder if that was a mistake on the lettering part, or if it was. Uh, Maybe Seymour's just like uh, not too good with the words. Right. That's what. I, or or if, if it was meant to be that way, and it was meant that Seymour's, you know, not the brightest bulb. I took it as his handwriting is almost illegible. That um, oh, yeah. that's all he was able to make out of it. Because I thought we saw somewhere else, or maybe it's afterward, where they actually look at the journal, and it's the, the, so bad that you can't... Well, actually, himself writes it. He's like, you know, have done, be- have done best to make this legible, but believe it paints a stirring picture. You know, in his last yeah. entry, he, he points himself that he you know, you know, probably doesn't have the best uh, handwriting. Yeah. I got a real big uh, Ned Beatty feel from Seymour. Like, you know, in the Superman movies when, um, you know, because, like, I mean, look at the newspaper editor. Look, I mean, he could be, like, Lex, you know, and then Seymour could be Ned Beatty's character, which kind of goes back to the – remember how I said a couple episodes ago that, like, there's a lot of pairs in Watchmen? Like, if you look at, like, the two writers thing, then, like, these two are definitely of their own, like, culture, of their own volition together, just as much as Dan and Laurie, just as much as Dr. Manhattan and Laurie and Rorschach and Dan and yada, 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 or Adrian and Bubastis, which, by the way, is a um, capital city uh, of of sorts in, in Lower Egypt. But, you know, these two together are do not, you know, what is it, uh, Strange Bedfellows? Because uh-huh. you have, like, the most extreme uh, J. Jonah Jameson and Perry White on their worst of days. And even though it's like, even though the birds are in the air, meaning that, like, they could be ready to drop the bomb wherever, you know, his default setting is that of what I always go back to in comics, true believer. We got to get this out. People have to know. Like, he's so aligned with not just the cause, but the point of view of the cause that let's make sure we report this not only first, but the way we want to report it. In other words, our angle on things. And, it, and it's funny, his comment, you know, again, that he's not seeing the bigger picture, um, but he says, I won't see the truth and integrity buried beneath an avalanche of drivel. And that's exactly what he's done. He's put the truth in the crank pile buried underneath, you know, you know, true, you know, crap. Um, so it's just it's just kind of kind of funny, and then we'll see we'll see this come back um, even later on. At, you know, at the end of end of the book, we'll come back to the New Frontiersman and poor Seymour, who you know is just the the whipping boy for the editor. So then we go move to, you know kind of moving on to twenty five, and really twenty five and twenty six is just um, Rorschach and and Night Owl's journey to the Antarctic in the Owl ship to go find Adrian because they've they've you know they've they pieced it together that you know Adrian is behind all this, or they're pretty certain that he is he is behind this, and um, and they need to find out what's going on. And hopefully, I don't think they quite understand yet that you know that how tied into the end of the world this is. They just think for whatever reason Adrian is perpetuating the 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 death of the hero of of the costume adventures and and John's exile, and they're not quite sure exactly why at this point. So they. They end up crash landing because of the cold, um, and and Dan's ship um, gets basically froze over. Um, they crash into the snow, and then they uh, they continue the rest of their journey. Um, on it's funny. I the first thing I thought of when I saw these things after reading it more recently is they they're almost like segways that float. You know, they, they just got a real segway vibe out of them. And then I thought it was interesting that 
you know, he, he switches, you know, Dan, of course, switches into his, his uh, winter night owl costume, which, again, we talked about in uh, issues back when we saw all the different costumes we had about the old, you know, kind of the, the you know, bad 70s Batman of, you know, 15 different costumes of all these freaky, um, you know, crazy, you know, silver agey kind of things going on. And then, of course, we see them moving more and more towards um, their destination, which, again, two riders were approaching as they approach Adrian's um, Adrian's facility here. And uh, and it, I thought it was funny. They, they mentioned they were, like, 20 miles away, and yet Adrian is sitting at the TV screen seeing them. So, it, again, it just kind of takes you more to his technology and what he has at his disposal that he can see them coming from so far away through surveillance out in the middle of nowhere. Not only that, he's so fascinated or intrigued by them coming that it's on every screen. Yeah. Yeah, here's a guy that's watching everything all at once all around the world. And, and you know, like you said, Ken, he's focused, you know, 20 they TV a, screens. They have a singular focus at this point. Yeah, exactly. When we get to uh, issue 11 in two weeks, you know, you see, like, the uh, Rachel Ghoul-like uh, espionage in the middle of the desert, in this case, in the middle of the wintry cold uh, cameras pop up they're actually filming these two and i remember um if there's any panel of watchmen that sticks out to me it's actually this page just because and this is just i don't know if it's just fascination or something that doesn't look quite right but i think that panel three is just the weirdest thing i've ever seen (laughs) i have no explanation or justification for it i just think that that panel has always stuck out to me like my god that is just weird it's just strange looking and actually, the full shot of Panel really, Two really is weird. just weird to me. Just the way that snowsuit they call it, it just you know engulfs him and just just it's odd. Like a pod. Yeah, it's a pod. Exactly. Yes. And he's a pod person. <laughs> it's just weird. I think it's weird that like you know, and we talked about this in the Christmas episode, kind of like you know, like when Batman animated came out, and even when Dark Knight came out, how Batman has like. 27 different uh, iterations of his character, like Infrared Batman, Nuclear Holocaust Batman, um, uh, Feed the Baby, uh, Dress Up Batman, you know, it's all these weird things. And like, (laughs) here's the one character who legitimately has 3,000 different costumes and they're not making any toys out of it. Yeah, yeah, not yet. Yeah, not yet. That's what I was just about to say. No, we'll see that in the next couple of pages of the prose piece when they start laying out the figures. Yeah. So then, of course, we get at the bottom and, you know, the Bubastis is acting up and Adrian's like, everything's all right. And I think Adrian's finally seeing, okay, the jig is up, it's coming to a head, um, you know, but we'll see how it all, how it all lays out at this point. Because, you know, Dan wasn't really targeted in the, in Adrian's scheme. So I think that's why he's kind of like, okay, well, let's, okay, look, look who we have here. You know, like the whole Lando thing, like, hmm, what have we here? You know, like, yeah. That's. I think that that was Adrian didn't have a contingency for Dan. You know he didn't. So I think that's part of the fascination. Like, well, end of the world. Now this is a little. This isn't how I expected things. You know. Well, and I think that I said something like this before. He really underestimated Dan. Dan to the point where he just didn't even consider him. You know, Dan was out of the game. He's been out of the game since the the um, the Keen Act. He wasn't a factor. It wasn't until. Through his own, you know, plan of getting rid of getting rid of John, he basically pushed Laurie to him, and that's what really kind of kicked off, you know, his hero instinct again, if you will, and got him back back in. It, it was just 
for everything he can see and everything he can try to predict and guess, there's just these some variables he just could not figure out. And to him, Dan was just not even part of the game. And then, of course, we get the quote at the end. It says, I, I thought this was interesting when a quote kind of more directly ties to the, to the end here, but it says, outside in the distance, a wildcat did growl. And, of course, what happened right before the end of the book here is Bubaskis starts to kind of growl a little bit. And, uh, you know, and, and, and Ozymandias tells her that, to, Adrian tells her, that, you know, it's okay. And it says two riders were approaching, which, of course, we see Dan and Rorschach. And then it says the wind began to howl. And, of course, there's a snowstorm going outside, which I would imagine would, would have wind, you know, wind, uh, you know, storm blowing. So, again, very interesting. So then, of course, we get to the prose page. And this was pretty light, I would say, this time. It's more um, we get to see on the second page of the prose piece where um, we get a, a owl ship play, a play set and, um, you know, uh, Prototypes for upcoming action figures of 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 Owlman, Rorschach, Moloch, Ozymandias, and Bubastis. And um, in the first page is a letter from you know marketing and development guy to just say, look, we think you know that these are the figures we should go with, and um, we don't have to worry about any copyrights really because these characters, a, we don't know their real identities, b, they're you know they're they're outlawed anyway, so they can't really sue us for you know. Activity they shouldn't be performing to begin with. Um, the other thing to note is that this is a recent memo. Um, this isn't something that you know from back in the heyday or from back in shortly after retirement, because they mentioned that Edward Jacoby died recently. Um, so again, so Moloch, you know, this is after Moloch is you know shortly died. So this is within you know the last couple weeks, you know, even that this has happened. Um, and then the other thing interesting to note is Adrian's retort on the toy line is he really doesn't see how it's necessary to have any of the other heroes other than him. Uh, you know, that basically <laughs> yeah. he's, he's fine with blue bosses, but you know, yeah, I'm not so sure we should have night owl or Rorschach or Moloch, but we should have, you know, super other super villains created and, you know, keep them with a more militaristic um, flavor because that's, what's going to sell. And again, it gets back to the analysis he's done, the trends he's looking towards, um, knowing what's upcoming, right. um, that that's what it is. Well, his last line in his note here, the American public has never really gone in for superheroes in a big way. Yeah. They've, yeah. they've rejected them, actually, in this world. And then, of course, the next, the next um, memo has to deal with the cosmetics, and it's, it's about um, them basically rebranding nostalgia and, and how you know, Adrian is basically saying, we're going to end this line and we're going to start up a new line um, that's going to be called Millennium. And we're going to start it up after, you know, you know, shortly. So, again, more of that knowing what's coming, knowing what he set in motion or what he's setting in motion. This is, you know, this is what he thinks that, you know, should should take place. And then the last piece is just, um, you know, what we've seen on the back of the comics um, that we, that you know, the Black Freighter comic that, that uh, Bernie's been reading. Um, and it just talks about that Vite method and, you know, what's considered the Vite method. And it's all kind of spelled out here. As to as to how to to reinvent yourself, you know, in these pages, this is the first time I really could see how hands on he really is. Because every time we saw the few times we saw him in his world, he almost seemed disinterested and distracted uh, from the day to day stuff. That he was more interested, more interested in what was going on in the world in a bigger picture. You know, looking back, it's it's on what he's been planning. But now we're seeing these memos and these letters that he's very very hands on to what he's been creating uh, in his name. 
This is for bonus points if anybody can get this, and if you guys or anybody else who's with us on the forums, etc. So he has this desk calendar, and all these historical documents are laid out on it, right? So really these memos that we're reading now are Adrian's plans post-November the 2nd. And as we get in issue 11, which we'll do in two weeks, um, the end of the world happens on November the 2nd. So these are actually Adrian's plans in a post-Adrian's plans world. Yep. So his negation of Rorschach and Night Owl – probably is a result of his plan. Now, maybe not so much Night Owl, but definitely Rorschach with Rorschach's incarceration. So remember, Adrian's writing these with the knowledge not only of the plan, but like the dates. So if anybody can figure out the calendars that are on the prose pages, that would certainly be something. Uh, And I will have infinite respect for you if you can swing it. Because like there's numbers and stuff. I guess you'd have to look at a calendar from 85. Like get your computer to 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 jump there and and go from it to see like what month it was because it's obviously E M B E M B E R so that's what um, September October November December In, yeah uh, December yeah. you know so that 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 would be something I figured I figured this was just November I, I didn't even think to think that where the dates would match up kind of like point of interest you know yep. and you know I think and the one thing that's cool about um, the prose pieces too and I, I think I'm really starting to get that extra add-on this is this is like dvd commentary or extras you know uh without just happened to be you know 20 years ago in a a comic book but the inclusion of all these historical documents in this book is amazing to me because it shows what we spoke of earlier the spirit of the times and hollis mason's background and his take on under the hood and adrian's corporate well haha pyramid scheme but the inclusion of historical documents is so important because I think like our podcast right now, getting ready for Watchmen to come out, like Comic Geek Speaks podcast, getting ready for Watchmen to come out, this is what people were thinking, what people were feeling, just like how Comic Book Resources is doing the column now too. I think what you're seeing is right before the movie, everyone's chiming in, everyone's putting their two cents in, and I couldn't think of a better group of guys to do it with. I couldn't think of a better comic community to do it with. And um, I, I will tell you, I am so jazzed for 11 and for 12 that um, I really think that this is, you know, you start to have ownership over something. And I, I think that we've, like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, I think we've hit our stride. So, guys, this was an awesome episode. And rock on with your bad dude selves. All right. Well, I guess that does it for issue 10. Join us in two weeks when we'll be here for issue 11. Next week will be a one-shot episode. It will be my pick, and it's going to be X-Men Days of Future Past, um, my favorite X-Men story of all time. Um, So, again, don't forget the contest. Um, Give us, you know, bust the dudes. You know, if there's something that you saw, again, uh, that we didn't point out or something, you know, that, that, uh, that you feel we should have mentioned and didn't, um, you know, read, read the short stick this time. So uh, email read, R-E-E-D, at legionofdudes.com and send all that contest info to him. If you have general comments, of course, as always, you can leave us uh, an email or send us voicemail at comments at legionofdudes.com. Um, always thanks to Brad and Frank over at Half Hour Wasted for allowing us to be hosted with, with them. If you're not checking out their show, as always, please do so. 
um, as well as Mr. Ken Morgan and his Too Old to Grow Up, a great show always. Um, and again, thanks to Ed Pisker for uh, joining us as a special guest, and thanks to Mr. Jim Dietz for, um, for bringing him along. So I guess that's, that's all we have for, for this issue. Very See good. Guys, we? Yep, have a good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Business man there, drink my wine. Come on.